down. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Elf. It's a Christmas movie. Um, if you like slapstick, juvenile, raccoon-biting humor, you'll like it. And if you're wondering why I would enjoy a silly, eating gum off of New York City handrail-type humor, well, I'm a guy, and we're genetically predisposed to being juvenile. So that's why either way, in that movie, and it is just filled with silly um, things that happen, uh, there's a scene in the movie where the main character... Uh, accuses a children's author of being an angry elf. It was a person who thought very highly of themselves. And the end result of that accusation is the main character gets flipped on the table and gets kicked out of the room. Again, it's the whole theme of the movie. Now, I say that just to set up this. Whenever I think of Ellie Hugh, I always thought of the angry elf personality. I always thought, here's a guy ready to go at the drop of the hat, quickly offended with an inflated ego. And interestingly enough, uh, through the years, many commentators have painted him the same way. And since at the end, he's not reprimanded by God, he's not spoken about like the other friends, they actually make him to be a meaningless character that God doesn't even bother with him. Now, there's an innate problem with that because God never sees someone as meaningless and he doesn't diminish someone so much that he's not bothered with them. Add to that this question, why in the world, if Elihu is meaningless, would there be six chapters of his conversation? If he is just a repeat of the friends, which that dialogue has wrapped up, why in the world would God inspire the writer of Job to have Six chapters, because scripture is always there for a reason. And so here's some truths that we can know. Elihu adds to the situation. We know that God does not see him as meaningless. And so we know he provides valuable insight. As I mentioned, I had always read Elihu and I thought the same thing that many commentators had mentioned is, why, why is he in here? But in the process of studying his conversation, which I was, I'll be honest, approaching with a little dread because if you view Elihu as the angry elf and you think, I'm going to preach six chapters of this, how do you preach six chapters on someone you view as this angry personality? Uh, I learned, though, in the process of studying to see his words and example from a different perspective. And I want to kind of share that because I'm assuming a lot of us have walked into this passage the same way as they have through the years, and not everyone has thought of Elihu the same way. And, and actually, the insight that is coming through now, one, uh, one person wrote some things about how to see Elihu. One, as I read his, his statements, his words, I removed my own context. His words do tend to come across a little pretentious if they're put into our world. But as one key commentator notes, it's a bit pretentious to constrain him to our societal norms of conversation. We actually don't know how he would have been perceived in his own society. We are turned off a little bit because everything seems boisterous and bombastic and he's making the statement. But if you take that in context of the book and the fact that we have just walked through an inordinate amount of chapters of bombastic speeches, and let's be honest, from Job and his friends, then as we start throwing him into his context, we realize that we may be being a bit pretentious, saying that he is pretentious. And two, if you look at his point and his focus, and I want to say this, he's not perfect because he is a human, 
But I, I want you to see that his main focus, it is about God. It's about God's name and it's about God's glory. And that sheds a lot of light on why Elihu is not reprimanded. Why six chapters are devoted to his statement. To be honest with you, and this was a really big point for me, why it seems God takes up Elihu's conversation. Like Elihu starts the conversation. And if you walk from chapter 37 to 38, God continues the conversation. He seems to pick it up where Elihu has left off. Also, notice this. Job never speaks against Elihu. Multiple times, Elihu says to Job, speak up if you have something to say. I've heard you, but speak up. And Job never does. And, and so you can almost imagine that Job, maybe for the first time, is, is, is grappling with what Elihu is saying. And because we're coming to this conclusion, and to summarize one of the, the commentators, Christopher Ash, Elihu claims to bring a word from God. He, he explicitly does not connect his wisdom to tradition. He says it is from God. So either he is a liar or he's a prophet. And if he was a liar, God would have exposed him as a liar. So the context of these chapters point to him being a prophet. So maybe not always the kindest approach. Elihu speaks truth about God that Job needs to hear because he's addressing Job's error and how Job has addressed God. Never is he accusing Job of prior sin. And that's something to keep in mind. Why is he different from the friends? Because Elihu is not drawing a conclusion about Job's life. Elihu is actually addressing the sin that he heard Job say. And he's worked up about God's glory. Because as one commentator notes, it's not true that Job is suffering because he sinned. But it is true that because Job has suffered, he has said some sinful things. And it's for those sinful sayings that Elihu confronts Job. So we begin now with an introduction to this new character in the story. And all of it has been in poetry. Pro is when you get the normal narrative that's in the beginning chapters and you get it right here in these first five verses is a narration of what's going on. And so we get introduced to Elihu and we see clearly in that Elihu has a passion, and I call this Elihu's passion. Uh, listen to this. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. And don't read into that. It's they can't prove to Job that he's wrong. Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the kindred of Ram. And I'm not going to mention this later, but of all the friends, he's the only one given genealogy and connection, which is always done in Scripture because that person is a significant person or important. So God has pointed to this constantly that Elihu is going to speak something from him. Against Job was his wrath kindled because he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends was his wrath kindled because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. And, and so what you're seeing there is he's furious at the friends, not just because they couldn't answer Job, but because they had the audacity to condemn Job even when they couldn't have proof for that condemnation. And now Elihu had waited till Job had spoken because they were elder than he. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, then his wrath was kindled. And as one writer notes, answers in anger dominate the introduction to Elihu. He's angry and he wants answers. 
He's angry because there's no answers. The friends have not answered Job, and Elihu thinks, and he thinks correctly, that Job warrants an answer. They have not responded to the charge of Job. They have not responded to what he's talking about. And he looks to the friends and says they've failed. They've not solved the problem, and they still persist in their condemnation. That's verse 3. So Elihu is rightfully indignant at them. And we're going to see in these chapters how he accuses the friends of throwing up their hands and pretending to be wise when they haven't answered the question and saying God will deal with them. And he says, no, you have a responsibility. And so he's frustrated at them for not doing their job. Yet that's not the only person with whom Elihu is angry. Against Job was his wrath kindled. Why? Because Job, in his true blamelessness, remember, God said about Job in chapter 1 that he is blameless. He is, he is a person of integrity. He lives out who he is. He's not saying he's perfect. He's saying he's blameless. Because Job in his true blamelessness has blamed God. What is the passion of Elihu that we see? Elihu is upset, not for himself or his name, not about his tradition or his wisdom, not about his culture or his life, but instead he is upset because of God's name and God's reputation. He's not worked up as the other three friends were because Job is confronting their worldview. He's not worked up because what he thinks is right, Job is throwing or rocking the boat on. His focus is on God and God's glory. He actually begins the answer that God finishes. In essence, he is a preparatory message to God's complete answer from 38 to the end of the book. As one person notes, he's like a John the Baptist or Elijah figure. And I hope that's helping us change our perspective a little bit of Elihu, because again, when we read it and we see his words, we are confronted with his anger and, and his He'll say multiple times, I have to share my opinion. I have to share my opinion. But when you understand that his opinion is a prophetic word, well, then suddenly you realize why he feels the compulsion to share it. Listed in the prologue to Job in the 1560 Geneva Bible, it says this, Job maintains a good cause, but handles it evil. In other words, Job is right in his stand on blamelessness, but has wrongfully attacked God, which, as that prologue states further, was his good cause, which he does not handle well. Elihu is stepping in because Job has said sinful things about God in his suffering. No, he doesn't say to him, you're suffering because of sin. He's saying that while you've been suffering, you've sinned. And Elihu wants to address that. Why? Because of a passion for God's name and his glory. Verses 1 through 5 is not supposed to communicate to us that Elihu is an angry elf, that he's this worked-up individual consumed with his own rights that needs to make sure everyone sees him a certain way, otherwise he's going to blow his top. He's not there to promote himself. Instead, he is worked up at all the people in the situation specifically because of God's glory. God's name and reputation is the burden he carries. And I, I put here a question or two. Whose glory are you burdened to defend? 
Because Elihu is teaching us something, and I hope we can see this, that the focus needed to shift off of man's traditions, and actually, Job, it needed to shift off of your current situation, and it needed to shift to God. And anything that diminishes God's glory is not what we should be going for. But honestly, evaluate your life. Whose glory are you burdened to defend? Or I put here, who do you go to bat for? And think about that. In life and in function, who do you walk up and say, now this is why I'm going to address this. Now I have to take up this person's mantle. I have to fight for this person's right. I have to explain this situation. Whose glory are you going to defend? Whose glory do you get worked up about? And I think if we're honest, we'll find that oftentimes it's our glory or our friend's glory, or our friend's cause, or our cause, or our family cause, and everything starts with our or mine. But Elihu shows us what it looks like to be burned up for God's glory, and that's going to tell you where your passion is. It will indicate your focus. Now that's the intro to Elihu, and then we dive now into Elihu's first speech, And it's a speech that begins not to Job, but actually is a speech that is addressed to the friend and then moves to speaking to Job, a speech that articulates Elihu's purpose. That's the rest of chapter 32. And Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzai, answered and said, I am young and you are very old. That wasn't an insult back then. That was a compliment just in case you're wondering. Wherefore, I was afraid and durst not show you mine opinion. I said, day should speak and multitude of years should teach wisdom. He's saying this, I've kept silent because you're supposed to be the wise ones. I've respected your position. I've kept my thoughts to myself. I assumed that you would have better insight. And again, I want you to recognize, because we see his burning passion, you forget that he's had a lot of patience. There has been a lot of talking going on that has transpired over a significant period of time. This is not one hour. This is days, possibly weeks. Then he goes on, but there is a spirit in man and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. And you get an idea of what he's trying to say. He's saying, but God, through the inspiration of God, I have the need to speak is what he's saying. Great men are not always wise. We know that. Powerful people are not always wise. Influential people are not always wise. He's saying the whole tradition of who's wise and who's not wise doesn't always play out. Neither do the age understand judgment. Therefore, I said, hearken to me. I also will show my opinion. And he's not trying to promote self here because you have to go all the way back to the spirit he's referencing, which he's in a reference again. And he references the inspiration of the Almighty. You see, right now, Elihu is contrasting superior age and experience their possible knowledge against the words that come from God. He's saying, you may have all the world's wisdom. It may be encapsulated in you, and and it should be, but you don't always have all the answers. But someone who does is God. And sometimes we need, and all the times actually, need to listen to his wisdom. Why should he express his opinion in light of their vast knowledge? Because he says that what he is saying is actually not his opinion, and knowledge. It is God's inspiration, and therefore it warrants attention. 
Elihu is again walking into this conversation saying, I'm talking because I've been inspired by God to talk. He's saying, I bring a prophetic word from God. He's proclaiming God's words directly. He says, behold, I waited for your words. I gave ear to your reasons. Whilst you searched out what to say, yea, I attended unto you. And behold, there was none of you that convinced Job or that answered his words. You haven't won Job to your side. You haven't even answered what he's saying. Lest you should say, we have found out wisdom. God thrusteth him down, not man. Now he hath not directed his words against me. Neither will I answer him with your speeches. They were amazed. They answered no more. They left off speaking. When I had waited, for they spake not, but stood still and answered no more. Elio says, I waited a long time to see if you would answer Job with real or true wisdom. You have not. That's his accusation to the friends. He says, you've articulated all of man's wisdom. You've given the response of the morally serious person, but you've not answered Job's cry. You haven't dealt with the situation at all. You haven't answered anything. And he says, and for them to throw up their hands, this is verse 13, and say in essence that they have given wisdom and Job is too pig-headed to see it, let God handle him. He says, that's a failure and indicative of your lack of wisdom. I want you to realize that he's not pulling any punches with the friends. He's actually said, you look like wise people, but you're fools. You've not spoken what's true. You don't get to throw your hands up and say, it's impossible. Let God deal with them. Job is, in other words, you can't blame Job for this. You've brought no wisdom to the equation. How does God finish this conversation to the friends? Basically says, Job better sacrifice for you, otherwise you're done for. In other words, you see the preparatory message in Elihu that is finished with God's statement to them. And Elihu is not going to carry their arguments further. He says, verse 14, I'm not touching what you said. Instead, he highlights the need for a message from God. And it's a message he feels God has given him. I said, I will answer also my part. I also will show mine opinion. For I am full of matter. The spirit within me constraineth me. And go all the way back to the spirit before that's in man and the Almighty's inspiration. And now he's speaking to the need to communicate what God has said. Behold, my belly is as wine which hath no vent. It is ready to burst like new bottles. I will speak that I may be refreshed. I will open my lips and answer. Let me not, I pray you, accept any man's person. Neither let me give flattering titles unto man. In other words, I'm not going to pontificate on how smart I am and the positions I have and how many people listen to me and how many sheep I own and how many cows I own and many times I've done the right thing. He says, I'm not going to give any emphasis to what humanity elevates. For I know not to give flattering titles, and so doing, my maker would soon take me away. In other words, he says, I'm not caving to any level of hierarchy that this world gives either him or anyone else. Because if he did, God would just remove him from his role. He says here, I need to speak. And right away we think, ha, how arrogant are you that you're pushing it in? But the words he is driven to say come from God. The spirit within me constraineth me. He's not expressing self-importance so much as expressing the need for God's wisdom to be heard. God's words, he's saying, must be injected into this conversation. And to not speak what God has made clear would result in an explosion. I put in parentheses, let me caution us all here. If we're to speak God's words today in this dispensation, then they will come from his holy word. Too many 
today claim his word, but the words they say are not found in his word. And so I would caution you to not suddenly say, oh, I'm Elihu. I'm going to dive into this conversation, tell people I'm inspired, and you have to listen to me. I recognize that he was bringing a true prophetic word. And if you are bringing a true word to any situation, it will be birthed from God's word. Yet Elihu has God's words and their expression is a divine necessity. He's not the first person to say this. Jeremiah wrote this. Jeremiah 29, he's speaking about the word of God given to him. He says, then I said, I will not make mention of him. This is Jeremiah, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. In other words, Jeremiah says, I'm sick of preaching. I don't want to do it anymore. But he says, I can't not preach. And that is the passion that Elihu was bringing. He had to speak and he would not be partial or cater to anyone because that would be God removing him then from his role. What is the purpose he brings? What is his, his driving now desire? He's telling his friends, I have to do this, is to speak God's word into this confused situation. Now, if he's told the friends, you're fools, you're not wise, he's basically telling them, you've never spoken God's word in this situation. You've been talking about something else. But what this situation needs is not more chatter from the world. It needs God's word. So I want you to think a little bit on this driving purpose. Elihu was prodded to speak, not from self-importance, not because he liked to talk, but instead so that God's truth would be interjected into the swirling, confusing, and corrupting advice from the world. We live in a day and age where there is confusing, swirling, corrupting advice that comes from the world. And if you wonder what is needed, it's really simple. It needs God's word. His purpose was expressing God's truth, expressing God's word, which makes me wonder this. Whose words are you dying to speak? See, Elihu was not burned up about saying what he thought. He was burned up to communicate what God had told him. His passion, his explosive need to speak was driven by the fact that he wanted and knew he needed to share God's truth. Whose words are you dying to speak? That tells you a lot about your purpose. Is it your opinion that matters or is it God's? And I know if you're sitting here, you're going to say, oh, of course it's God's. Well, then let's look at your life. Let's look at what your passion is. And then let's see what you need to talk about. And you start seeing if you really are as Elihu was, desiring God's truth to be interjected in here. Is it my opinion that matters or is it God's? Whose words take precedent in my life? And then really, whose words come out of my mouth? What? is the thing that you need to say. And you can answer that honestly. And if it's not God's word, then it tells you a lot about what your purpose is. Well, following his blunt confrontation of the friends, worldly and faulty wisdom, he now turns his attention in this first speech toward Job. And we see now Elihu's petition, and it's all of chapter 33. He's petitioning Job in this. He says, Wherefore, Job, I pray thee, hear my speeches. And hearken to all my words. Behold, now I have opened my mouth. My tongue has spoken in my mouth. 
My words shall be of the uprightness of my heart, and my lips shall utter knowledge clearly. The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. If thou canst answer me, set thy words in order before me, stand up. Behold, I am according to thy wish in God's stead. Remember Job, and we'll talk about this a little later. Job said he could never stand before God. God is too overwhelming. And Elihu saying, God sent me as you requested. He goes on, I also informed out of the clay. Behold, my terror shall not make thee afraid. Neither shall my hand be heavy upon thee. Elihu is not elevating himself. He's saying, I'm just clay like you. I'm sent by God to give you a word. You don't have to fear fear my person. And we should fear the person of God and the presence of God. It is the Almighty. He's saying, God is sent. He's constrained to allow this to be said to you by a simple human. And again, we build to this preparatory message that God is going to finish in person. Elihu is calling Job formally into court to hear his words. Job wanted a court session. Elihu is responding in the same context there. He's saying, yes, stand up. Let's go to court. You said you couldn't bear God in court, but you'll be able at least to talk with me. He assures Job that his motives are pure. He speaks so that Job will be affected and changed. He says, I want you to understand. I'm not trying to beat something in your head. I want you to get it. That's why the knowledge is clearly, Elihu remarks, God has seen fit to speak to you through another human, through me. So there is no need to be terrified or afraid, which again was a concern that Job had raised earlier about being in the, in the exact presence of God. How can you actually answer God when God's right in front of you? By the way, Job is right about that. We live in a world that says, well, when I get up to heaven, when I die, I'll tell God something. You will tell God absolutely nothing. You will listen to God. You will do exactly what God says. You won't argue back. There will be no, that's not fair. That's, that doesn't enter your mind. Job is, is showing us actually what it would be like to stand in God's presence. Elihu is now saying, you get any chance. I'm going to speak to you. He says, surely thou hast spoken in mine hearing, and I have heard the voice of thy words, saying, I am clean without transgression. I am innocent, neither is there iniquity in me. That's what Job has said. I'm blameless. There's no hidden sin. Behold, he findeth occasion against me. Now this is, he's saying, this is what you said against God. He counteth me for his enemy. He putteth my feet in the stocks. He marketh all my paths. Behold, in this thou art not just. I will answer thee that God is greater than man. What dost thou strive against him? For he giveth not account of any of his matters. And this is what Elihu does. He summarizes what Job has said, which is, I'm innocent of some secret sin, and God has unjustly attacked and ridiculed him. Putting, being put in stocks was this idea of public humiliation, incarceration. And it's an accurate description of what Job has said, and Elihu is now going to confront Job about that. As one writer notes, though, Elihu will not tell Job he is suffering because he has sinned. Nothing Elihu says links to Job being some type of secret sinner hidden away. He says this. Instead, he's going to rebuke him for saying sinful and wrong things because he is suffering. Elihu then makes clear that God does speak. He's not silent. Remember what Job said? He's silent. He's quiet. He doesn't say anything to me. Elihu says, For God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet man perceiveth it not. God does speak to us, and in more than one way. And what Elihu is trying to communicate to Job 
not in a prescriptive way, but he's saying God has connected. And he goes on for the first, in a dream and a vision of the night when deep sleep falleth upon men and slumbering upon the bed, then he openeth the ears of men and sealeth their instruction that he may withdraw man from his purpose. And this is why God speaks and hide pride from man. He keepeth back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. See, God uses a conscience to turn humanity from sin. Elihu lists four different passive possibilities. And I want you to realize it's poetry. He's not trying to be prescriptive. He's just giving you an idea of how God would passively communicate through your conscience. And basically, God works on us so that we can know that we are culpable and that we need to seek forgiveness. Here is the word that we're used to hearing. God convicts us. That's what Elihu is saying. God convicts you. God works on your conscience. God has not been silent. What's God's purpose in that? To protect him, Job, and us from the inevitable death and judgment that comes with disobedience. In other words, we are convicted for our own protection, our own good. Job has said, God is silent. He's not talking. Elihu says, no, God is speaking. He speaks to your conscience and he speaks in a way that's good. I I wonder here if we recognize the gift of conviction. You ever been convicted and then been frustrated at the person God used to share that conviction? Never realizing that conviction is for your benefit. It's not to remove your pleasure. Oh, great. Now I feel guilty about that. Thanks for nothing. That's how we usually view conviction. But here, Elihu lets us know that conviction is for our protection, to keep your soul back from the pit, to keep you from perishing by the sword. God speaks to us also through suffering. And now you get this illustration of Job's suffering. You think, okay, there we go again. We're just going to berate him. But he's trying to share something to Job. He, he is chastened. And that word there in Hebrew, it might be translated rebuked in, in different translations. But the context of that word chastened is a conversation. So if you want to look at it this way, he is rebuked, he's spoken to, he's addressed also with pain upon his bed and the multitude of his bones with strong pain so that his life abhorreth bread and his soul dainty meat. This is Job. He hates his life. He is struck with pain. His flesh is consumed away that it cannot be seen. We've, we've heard that before. And his bones that were not seen stick out. That's all been things we've read in Job's description of himself or his friend's description of him. Yea, his soul draweth near unto the grave and his life to the destroyers. Everything that's said here, we've heard before. This is just summarized in a few verses. As C.S. Lewis wrote, though, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. But I want you to realize, Elihu is not saying you're suffering because of sin. He's saying that God is not absent in your suffering. God is still speaking to you. God is still working here. Here, Elihu seems to describe what Job is going through and how it is a word from God, not necessarily a punishment from God. And as the conviction ended in protection, right? Why are we convicted? Why was Job, why does God speak to our conscience and convict his children so that we are moved from the pit? We just came back from the Grand Canyon uh, and I have, obviously, you know, I have five kids, two of which 
uh, scare me a little bit. Uh, Avery was scared on her own about the Grand Canyon. Uh, the two younger boys forget there's a Grand Canyon and enjoy jumping on rocks that are one foot away from the abyss. And so um, 24 hours in the Grand Canyon, I mean, I think my beard turned white on the bottom. I just, it just changed me right there because you're death grip. You know, you're just holding on to a kid afraid they're going to slip out of your grasp because, hey, my stomach's turning and they're like, look at that neat little two-foot rock or stump. Either way, we understand the idea of falling into a pit and God is grabbing hold in conviction. He's protecting. He's putting the rail up, so to speak. But he goes on here, if he's going to protect us in conviction, then suffering results in rescue. 23 through 28, some of which we've already read. If there be a messenger with him, an interpreter, one among a thousand, and the word messenger can be translated angel, and it's, it's speaking of a savior. To show unto man his uprightness, then he is gracious unto him and saith, deliver him from going down to the pit. And I underline this, I have found a ransom. I have found a payment. His flesh shall be fresher than a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. Talking about eternity there. He shall pray unto God and he will be favorable unto him. And he shall see his face with joy for he will render unto man his righteousness. He looketh upon men and if any say, I have sinned and perverted that which was right and it profit me not, he will deliver his soul from going into the pit and his life shall see delight. And I want you to realize here a huge difference between Elihu and the friends because Elihu just introduces to Job the mediator that he's been calling for. Job knows he has a redeemer and Elihu says, you're right, you do. That's completely different than what the friends had to say about Job's mediator. Along comes an angel, a messenger, and you can go all the way to Zechariah where Satan comes to accuse Joshua, the high priest, and Christ steps in and says, you're not going to accuse him. He steps in his place. It says one in a thousand means a unique one. It doesn't mean one out of every thousand. It means one in a million is how we would say that. In other words, something that's unique, a redeemer that will be the ransom for him. He is the hope that Job has sought. And what Elihu is trying to point out, it's not found in self-vindication. Instead, it's in Christ's vindication. Salvation cannot be achieved by us, but it's given by the deliverer, which he keeps talking about. The result is a prayer to God, a joyful reconciliation with our Lord and Savior. It is full deliverance accomplished by an amazingly merciful God. See, Elihu goes right to where the message is supposed to go. God's talking to you, and when God talks, it's for your protection. When God talks to you, it's for your rescue. Lo, all these things worketh God, oftentimes with man, to bring back his soul from the pit, to be enlightened with the light of the living. God speaks, whether through conscience or pain, he speaks. And the reason he speaks, and this is so critical, is redemptive. God talks, and it's always a redemptive message. It's not sometimes, it's always. His conviction is not to ruin your life, his conviction is to protect your life. When he talks through suffering, as much as we hate it, and I hate suffering, just like the next person would, he speaks to redeem. So Elihu is pleading with Job to recognize that God is talking to him. That's his petition to Job. And it's wrong to accuse God of silence and lack of love. So 
Mark well, he says, O Job, hearken unto me. Hold thy peace and I will speak. If thou hast anything to say, answer me. Do you know how many times he said that to Job? Got anything to say, say it. You got anything to say, say it. You got anything to say, say it. If not, just keep listening because I'm going to give you what God had to say. If thou hast anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify thee. And he speaks to what he wants to do. What was the friend's goal? To tell Job to repent, to condemn Job. And what does Elihu say? I want to justify you. I want, I want to show you your God, the mediator you've called for. If not, hearken unto me, hold thy peace, and I shall teach thee wisdom. And again, we hear arrogance because we put his speech into the context of our world. I imagine that if they listened to us talk, they would consider us inarticulate beasts that could barely wander through the forest. So depending on how you look at it and what time you come from, but he's not being arrogant or pretentious. He's drawing Job to see that Job's God speaks. Eliup calls on Job to pay attention to what he's saying. Eliup states that he's there to help, to justify Job, to see him standing correctly before God. What is the petition to Job? Listen to God who is speaking to you. What is he calling on Job to do? Listen to your God. If you go back to the friends, they said over and over again, listen to us. And Elihu is saying, listen to God. God's talking to Job through his suffering, and Elihu wants Job to hear him to let, as Ash notes, God's voice to do its gracious work of preserving Job from pride. Job needs to be humbled under the mighty hand of God, not under the mighty hand of man's tradition, not under the false teaching that this world offers, no matter what it may be, but instead humbled under the mighty hand of God, which, by the way, Elihu is prepping for God's entrance, which then you see Job humbled before God. Elihu's call is to pay attention to what God has to say, not necessarily pay attention to your own emotions. See, Job has got caught up in his emotions. And again, I don't want to, we've preached through multiple messages on Job, and we've seen that light, that constant desire for his Redeemer. We've seen him stick with the truth. He's blameless, and that's true. He's, he's, he is a man of integrity. That's true. But see, Elihu is driving him to not get caught up in his own emotions and not get caught up in the philosophy and logic of this world. What, is, what does this world have to say? Elihu said that's of zero importance. Listen to what God has to say, but I wonder this, to whom are you listening? Think about that. Are you driven by what the world says or says is important? I mentioned this in Sunday school, not to go into details, but I've watched Christian leader after Christian leader get wrapped up in what the world says is important, consumed with it. To the extent that I say this, they become heretics because they add to the gospel. And it's not me that says it. They're heretics because they add to the gospel. That's what Galatians says. Why? Because they got caught up in what the world thought was important. They were listening to the world. To whom are you listening Are you moved solely by how you feel? Are you driven by your emotions, by your perspective? 
by your circumstances. See, that's what Job is, that's the dangerous thing that Job has fallen into, is that his situation now has become how he sees life. And the key moments when he's seeing and looking for a redeemer are when he's looking outside of it. And we see at times where he, he sees beyond himself and he's looking towards God and seeing from God's perspective, and there's great insight. But a lot of it is blaming God. Why? He's driven by his emotions and circumstances. Or are you going to be swayed by the words from your Lord and Savior? This is the close to Elihu's first speech. God is speaking. He's told the fake friends about a true prophetic word of God, one that will be used to help Job hear God's word through his suffering and conscience. He's shown that God's purpose in speaking has been to redeem, to rescue, to save. I have a question for us. Are we seeing God's words that way? Do you savor God's words as words of redemption, rescue, and salvation? Or do we follow the world's take or even our own emotions and see his words as a burden or a fraud? See, Elihu started off with a bright light and fire. There's no doubt that his introduction says he's angry, wants answers, he's fired up, he's burned up about the misrepresentation of God, the disrespect and accusations against God. And here's a question. Do we share his passion for God's glory? Not a passion for how we can use God's glory to promote our agenda or whatever it may be. Do we share his passion for God's glory? He was burdened to share what God wanted stated. He felt a compulsion to make God's truth known. Do we share that purpose? Do we have a burning desire within us to inject God's word into the situation that we're in, where we're at, to the world around us? Do we have that same purpose? You see, Job needs to hear what God has to say, not what the friends have to say, not what this world has to say, not what his emotions were screaming. He needs to listen to God's truth. And I put as a kind of a closing question, do we share his need? Do we really share the need to hear God's word or have we settled for our own words, our own truth and our own way? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to dive into your word, to study again through the book of Job as we see a transition. We've walked through the dialogue with Job and his friends and we've seen the world's wisdom thrown out over and over again bringing no hope and bringing no answer. We've watched Job grow through this process. We've seen him seek his redeemer. We've seen him see you at times correctly, but we've also seen him strike out against you to blame you for the situation, to speak against your justice. And here we come to Elihu and he's saying, that's not right. That's not what God is worthy of. God is worthy of so much more God's glory is number one. And so he's driving Job to see that God is speaking to him and that Job needs to listen. He needs to recognize that God's purpose in speaking to him is not malicious or mean or cruel or twisted, but instead when he speaks to Job, he speaks because he desires to protect, he desires to redeem, he desires to rescue. God's words are redemptive. And I hope we can see that. And because our God is God, perfect, holy, righteous, 
because our God has sent his son to die on the cross for our sins to redeem us because his whole purpose through all of our earthly existence that we can read in scripture points to a God who wants to redeem. We know that he is worthy. Help us to recognize that and to listen to what he has to say. In your precious and holy name, amen.